Greetings, everybody. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Messy Time Studios, as ever, from the beautiful beaches of the last free state in America, Florida. It is late in the evening on August 5th, 2023, and I am joined in the studios today by Brandon and Zach of the I Came With Fire podcast. Gentlemen, thank yeah. you so much. I I thought we were doing an I Came With Fire podcast episode, but we can we can do both. Let's do both. I like that idea. I'm flexible. I'm completely flexible. Let's do it. Well, let's let, let perfect. Yeah, and then cross interrogate each other. So okay, well, yeah. I, I'll <laughs> yield the floor to you, Chris. You go right ahead. Sure, sure. So uh, <laughs> so you know we, we uh, uh, at Messy Times we cover a wide range of topics, and a huge chunk of it uh, is happens to be the international security related whether from the private sector or from uh, uh, kind of helping the 93% of Americans who actually have nothing to do with the military understand the military a little bit better. So um, oftentimes I'm interviewing uh, uh, retired folks for either combat control in the Air Force, uh, on the board of the foundation there, or for other, other branches of the military. And it is a rare treat today because you two are actually active duty. So we are. Uh, yep. It's you know maybe, maybe you could give a little color on what you all do uh, and and fill that in for those people out there wondering about a military career. Stu, you go ahead, Zach. Yeah. So if you're interested in a military career, uh, you got to first start with a recruiter, <laughs> which is uh, what I used to do. Uh, just recently, after three years, I was an Air Force recruiter, um, just putting people in the Air Force, filling slots, changing people's lives, all type of stuff. Uh, but currently, what I do, so I'm a tech sergeant. I currently am a sit-in. We call them undershirts, but I'm like the first sergeant for my unit. Uh, I deal with health, morale, and welfare, and uh, mostly deal with uh, a whole bunch of small fires from NCOs who you think could be able to deal with things on their own who are still technically airmen at heart. So I have to fix those things. And then uh, right. I'm doing that until about spring of next year and then hopefully back off to security forces, which was my original job, which military police. Oh. So that's me. That's awesome. And just, you know, I had heard a bit that um, recruiting in the last couple of years has been more challenging than it has in the past. Is that true? Or is it in your experience kind of about the same? So I think it's different branch to branch. Uh, they all kind of tackle that problem dif it, differently. The Air Force is still making goal. Like I think we're currently on track to not make it this year, which would be the first time since uh, before like 1991, I want to think. Hmm. Wow. Um, but the Air Force tends to somehow pull it out of its ass. Uh, we almost didn't make goal last year, and then we su succeeded it. So I wouldn't count us out yet, at least. I know the Army and Navy didn't make goal last year, and the Marines made goal like on the last day of the fiscal year at like the last hour or something. So um, it is harder. Um, Marines are clutch. The Air Force, yeah, the Air Force definitely has something different than the other branches. So we tend to not be too worried about it, but leadership is still worried about it for sure. Hmm. That's interesting. And for what you're looking at, is it across the scale? Are you going everything from pilots to mechanics to, you know, regular service airmen? Is it just whoever walks in the door, whatever the, their kind of pre-existing qualifications might be, will you know lead you towards what you think they can do? Or are you pitching a whole suite of stuff that anyone can, you know, strive for and try out for? So in Air Force recruiting, we actually don't pitch any jobs specifically at all. Um, we pitch the Air Force. So I'm just going to explain to you like, oh, you can travel, you can serve your country. There's the Community College of the Air Force, get your GI Bill, here's your set pay, all that type of stuff. Uh, that's what we sell you on. When it comes down to jobs, 
it really doesn't matter what you did before you're coming in at an entry level technically. So you could be like the best engineer ever. We're going to make you a cop. So it kind of just, right. uh, kind of where it falls. You know what I mean? Just, it's just, it's where the numbers That's not the wisest thing to do. Yeah. There's some give or take. There are tests they take. They take a test called a tapas, which will determine their like emotionality. They'll like, see if they like to work outside, if they like to work with their hands, all this type of stuff. Uh, the Air Force has been doing that for like the last eight-ish years. Um, they take the ASVAB, obviously, which tells us if they're good at mechanics or admin or something else. Um, so we take all these tests, and that tells us what, they're, what they should be good at. And then from there right. and what their interest is, we then fine-tune their jobs. Um, but enlisted, there's no pilot positions. We're all – we're the only – like I think it's like 2% of the Air Force flies. I can't remember the exact percentage. So the other right. 90 Except RPAs, right? So, no, enlisted don't fly RPAs anymore either. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So new, those, those are now all lieutenants. What's the RPA? Exactly. As a remote pilot hmm. aircraft, so it's like the drones, the Reapers, the Predators, which huh. I don't think we call them Predators anymore because that's offensive for some reason. But um, uh, so yeah, there's oh, that. <laughs> accurate. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 It, it is a predator. <laughs> coming to the trend of naming things for what they aren't anymore. <laughs> so yeah, right. Peacekeeper yeah. instead of predator. <laughs> exactly. Oh, right it's up. definitely keeping peace. House with some, some tomahawks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unless yeah. they yeah, yeah. don't fly those anymore. Or is that? Or is that you know? We still call tomahawk? tomahawks. Sure yeah, they're still called tomahawk missiles. Yeah, yeah. tomahawk missiles. Yeah. That's, that's mm-hmm. not being called. Hold, I'm not. Or I don't want to give any. Washington any ideas, but that sounds like cultural appropriation. But so Yeah, you're kinda of like thinking like how the NFL got rid of the Redskins. Yeah, no, we, we still call them Tomahawks. Good for you. <laughs> cool. And, and Brandon, what, what do you do in in uh yeah. day job? So uh I'm security forces also. Um by trade. I've been at it for almost 14 years. Zach and I actually met uh on deployed doing security forces duties in Africa. Um, but uh I've been at Malmstrom. Uh, doing uh, security for some pretty big missiles. Um, and then I was at Vogelway Air Station, which is in Germany, uh, which is the law enforcement hub of like the DOD for sure. Oh. Um, so it's a joint Army and Air Force unit, uh, very, very busy. And then uh, the Air Force decided to send me to California. So I'm here now. And uh, like I said before, I work um, with AFWorks and um, I do innovation essentially. Just put it that way. Right. But um, yeah, been at it for almost fourteen years. Um, military brat, uh, grew up all over the world because my dad was active duty, and um, yeah, that's, that's kind of me in a nutshell. That's but awesome. you can ask me whatever you want to know. No, I'm curious, but certainly, certainly for those uh, folks on the business end who are smaller businesses who have been trying to get more engaged with military yeah. contracting or government contracting, there's been a yeah. larger trend. Mm-hmm. Go back to the Obama administration, I think, to, to really trying to not make it just only Lockheed Martin and Raytheon can apply, but if you right. have something useful, then you can become part of one of these innovation tracks. So that's the group you're exactly. working with. So I do several different things aside from working with smaller companies. Um, so I have some skills that uh, the Air Force uses. Uh, one of them is 3D printing, uh, drafting. So I do that. Um, but yeah, so we work mostly with smaller companies that are seeking to solve more niche problems for the Air Force. Mm. Um, I, 
there's a lot of different things, whether that's from trying to solve weight issues or consumable issues, stuff like that. Um, we deal with those. And it's, uh, like I said, more on a niche uh, local level, um, but we do a lot of different things for a lot of different bases. Um, and uh, my job is growing, like you said, the innovation side of the Air Force is trying to become a lot more prevalent. Um, where I'm at kind of leads the way. We're the original uh, but um, some other bases, especially some of the bigger bases in the Air Force, are developing their innovation cells quite a bit, um, modeling it kind of after us. But um, yeah, so it's it's a very cool job. It's uh, it's something that I have loved doing. It's not my favorite job in the Air Force. I know that probably makes me crazy because I'm security forces. My favorite job was definitely at Volvoy. Um, just the tempo and the ops there. Uh, it was amazing, the camaraderie, but um, it is one of the coolest jobs and most unique jobs I've ever done. Um, and I've taken a lot away from it that uh, I can translate to the outside. So that definitely makes it um, the most uh, efficient job and the most uh, useful job I've ever had. So no attention to doing law enforcement on the outside. No, well, I'm sure. And, and, and uh, I was kind of curious about that. Is it, you haven't been a, you haven't been a, a, a policeman in the, in the private sector. So you know, is it somewhat, somewhat harder or easier to deal with, you know, an out of control service member that that needs needs some curtailing? I gather a lot. You know, is the stereotype of the so, drunken brawl down on Saturday night still still hold true? It is. Uh, I yeah. mean, I, having never, like you said, never been a cop on the outside, right? Um, I'm sure people punching you in the face feels the same either way. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, we do deal with the people that get trained to punch people in the face. Right. And um, I've definitely, I feel like you're probably on, a, you know, the, the sliding scale dealing with more dangerous people um, on average, I'd say, than um, police. But the one thing I will say that it is different and probably a lot safer is, um, I feel like civilian police deal with more armed right. perpetrators than than we do, right. just because of the on base aspect. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's what, where I was at in Germany is all off base. Um, we work side by side with Polizei, German police, and uh, if you think that American cops will beat your ass, uh, the Germans will one up you every day um, for sure. <laughs> they don't even have probable cause laws in Germany. So, oh. um, but uh, yeah, American we get to that. Just don't know how good they have it. Yeah, I guess, you know, um, you could get true. pulled over for driving while American. We joke, joke about over there. And um, that's <laughs> it. You know, your car is now their car. So, yep. um, but uh, yeah, I think that it's probably on average, probably more dangerous to be a cop as a civilian. Um, but yeah, sure. that'd be my, my estimation. Yeah. That that's what I was going to kind of say too. Yeah. My, my yeah. buddy, Frankie, he's a new cop. He's been a cop for a couple months now. And in his couple months, he's responded to some of the craziest things that I've only responded to like once, like yeah. in my, you know, 12 plus years of being a cop. And it's not to say that we don't respond to some crazy stuff. My first base was uh, Kadena Air Base in Japan. And I responded to a, a, an army sergeant who was living on base who had a meth lab in his kitchen. Oh. So like... Which there's the best place to be is against military regulations. It is. <laughs> yes. It is. Yeah. Surprisingly so. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's against <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's against every, right. every regulation. You're right. <laughs> but oh. It's pretty messed yeah, up. No, he, uh, Entrepreneurial sergeant. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's innovation, marine I'll, innovation. Marine or army <laughs> innovation. Yeah. Soldier innovation. Sorry. Yeah. I'll do a quick My rundown bad. of the story. Yeah. He was uh 
he would call the the desk, so 911 or whatever, and he would say, like, someone's trying to break into our house. And so we would show up, but even on base, they still have, like, they live on a house, like, you can't just walk in, like, you still need, like, probable cause, or you need, like, the base commander to say, yeah, go ahead, like, your, your warrant, pretty much. Um, and we would show up, and he would say, we'd be like, well, are they in your house? He'd be like, no. So then he wouldn't let us in. And then we'd walk around, we'd check, yeah. and I'd be like, all right, man, well, there's nothing going on. See you later. And that happened a couple times until one day he walked into, like at 2 o'clock in the morning, he walked into the security forces unit. He was covered in purple, like like a purple smoke grenade had gone off and right. he'd walked like through it or something. And he's carrying his daughter and he's with his wife. And he's like, they're in my house. They're in my house right now. And so we're like, whoa, okay. So we just... Code three, which is, you know, lights and sirens to his house. Um, I'd been there enough times. I knew exactly where it was. And I walk up and the front door's open. There's a purple smoke grenade going off in the front yard. I'm like, what the heck is this? This is one of the few times I actually drew my gun. As I was going to say, I would be, member. yeah. Right. Yeah. I was like, I was like, this dude's being attacked by like ninjas because we're in Japan right. or, uh, or the local, his local Said military buddy's gone nuts, you know, <laughs> and he's attacking him or something. <laughs> So I draw my gun, my alpha shows up or like police two shows up a little, little sec, couple seconds later. And I walk in, I'm clearing it and I'm like security forces. And I take the corner and meth lab. And the second I saw the meth lab, I was like, okay, I just put my gun. It away. all like, makes sense again. again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was getting high off his own supply. No one's ever break yeah. into his house. Yeah. You're just lucky no. he hadn't rigged it with grenades. Jesus. That's crazy. Yeah, he was just paranoid. And then when we, oh, so we got a statement later, when we got a statement later, he was hilarious because he was fully like compliant. And he was like, he's like, yeah, there was, he he said ninjas. He was like, there's these ninjas trying to break into my house. So I had to like pop smoke and egress with my family. Thanks for saving me. I was like, yeah, no problem, man. I was like, and about the meth lab? Like, what's that about? Yeah. And he, he was like, oh, we were, you know, tight on cash. So kind of doing a little side hustle. I'm like, all right, man, that's good. Write that, write that down. Write that down. (laughs) Spontaneous utterance, go. That's great. Yeah. There's bad apples in every bunch. No, I'm sure. I just, you know, it's funny. A good friend of mine uh, became a cop in New York, and he just, endless stories, just one after the other, the craziest, the one that that I love the most, just because it's so absurd. They're in like, like, precinct in east new york and he's now a death sergeant like so he got a promotion and he's no longer walking a beat but he's he's the death sergeant mm-hmm. and this guy it's like a it's like a sleepy you know afternoon in the summertime and this guy walks in he's probably in his like mid early 60s and he's like that's it i'm tired of running i'm turning myself in and everyone's <laughs> looking at him like who are you and he gives them a name and they're like who right they have been looking for this guy who was like well I'm, t- I'm tired i'm giving myself up i'm tired of this like well all right hold on so they pat him down and like come into a chair and then one of them gets the bright idea to go on the internet number eight on like the outstanding fbi top 10 most wanted like he, he's a <laughs> black panther crap. and a gangbanger who like committed a string of bombings and murders in like the 60s and so when he's been living wow, like wow. around the block from the police station for 30 years <laughs> And no Keep your friends him. close and your enemies closer. And, and he just right under their the, nose. He found religion. He decided it was no longer tenable to, to be running. And uh, they're they're looking at him like, oh god. And, and the funny thing was, I thought, well, you just you got a big collar. And it's like you're just not thinking like a cop. 
No, what I got was paperwork. And so when this happens, you have to like wait for the feds. Whoever makes the collar has to wait for the feds to show up. And it's like 11 o'clock on a Tuesday. And so I turned around to one of my subordinates. I'm like, you arrest him. He's like, oh, come on, Sarge. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, well, that, that's that's cool. So do you, you guys, you know, like it, career, career as far as you can tell, and, you know, someday you retire, maybe? Yeah, okay. yeah. That's all. Yeah, no, I, I think that uh, along with your guy, Zach's, Zach's guy probably had a subconscious, guilty guilty subconscious if he kept walking into the police station after he'd get high on his own supply. <laughs> just wanted somebody to catch him, man. Mm-hmm. I think he was just high off his own supply thinking we were like bugging his house or something. Or, like ninjas were there. Like, <laughs> I don't know. That's it's pretty, it seems pretty counterintuitive to your meth operation. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Oh, that's cool. So that's, so that's that's one pathway through the military that you guys endorse heavily. That you're going to get a, a, a lot of uh, a lot of not, not necessarily the, the kind of frontline action that you might expect going into the military, but plenty of action. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I thought you were well, you were getting at making meth as a as a way to get through the military. It's a way to get it's a way to get out of the military for sure. You know, as you, as your man said, money gets tight. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. It could if you're a very bad NCO very and don't yeah. manage money. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's cool. Probably so, was a bad first sergeant too. Exactly. Aren't you glad you're not that guy's troop or he's not your troop? Yeah. Oh, thank God. <laughs> so I, I want to hear how you came to be the CEO of Tambries and the largest rare earth mineral mine. I want to hear about that because that is – uh, definitely a topic that has grown over the past couple of years, uh, especially with um, COVID bringing to light a lot of different things supply chain wise. Um, but yeah, I want to hear I want to hear about this because it's something that Zach and I talk about pretty frequently. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll be very brief, but um, you know, uh, uh, well, well, I get a lot of questions about you know how do you how do you get there, right? And and you know, when in their twenties, getting out of college, like what's my path from here to there, and um my career path uh you ever do any improv theater only in high school i did and because i yeah, was I did in high to. school that's it so you remember yeah, the, rule number one, right is when you're handed a line you say yes and because if you say no the story stops so without meaning to my career was basically was largely improv i grew up in new york i went to the university of chicago um ended up with a degree in anthropology arabic and islamic history and then i worked uh, throughout you know North and South Africa for a number of years, um, came back to New York. You know, went to work for a big investment bank in the late '90s. Learned a huge amount there, uh, and basically my career has been split halfway between advanced financial technology, was you know cool and cool fintech these days, building exchanges, trading markets, trading systems, um, helping take a lot of the futures exchanges and stock exchanges, which were all open outcry, guys in funny colored jackets yelling at each other, turning that electronic. Uh, so kind of huge amounts of market efficiency stuff, very sort of wonky technical um, sort of stuff. And then the other half uh, was around uh, commodities and uh, commodity financing and trading. And a chunk of that was because, uh, uh, you know, so put my hand up, someone said, does anyone know, know anything about this, the Sharia finance stuff? I know about this Islamic finance stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I later, I later, when I knew a lot of friends in, in, in the Navy who taught me the phrase voluntold, uh, <laughs> great, terrific. You're on the next plane to Dubai. We're working on a transaction. Um, 
which is great. So, so you know, a lot of a lot of Sharia compliant financing revolves around physical assets, right? Because not allowed to charge interest in the abstract because that's against the will of God. Um, and so, for a range of reasons, I just had to work on a lot of innovation. So, a lot of my background was finance and how you trade commodities better, uh, more efficiently, make more make more money off it. And along the way, since I you know came from a kind of national security based family, I've always done a lot of work from the private sector side in national security, a lot of public private partnerships, a lot of engagement with multiple administrations, with multiple you know, the uh, the Pentagon and with um, a lot of the officer corps around um, whether strategy or, or or tactics relating to uh, how the private markets will impact security. You know, some of my You'll, you'll relate. Some of my most amusing moments are there's nothing better than getting a two or three star admiral or general who is used to being in control, right? And I had this one back and forth. We had a long two day seminar uh, at SOCOM in Florida with a bunch of you know brass talking to them, and we gave a big talk on the oil markets. And I had this this uh, three star general who was like, "Look, if oil were sixty five fifty a barrel, I'd have peace, and I'd fucking like that." Right, like it was just where his region is like that would just make things better. So why can't we just make it sixty-five fifty? I tried to explain to him, General, if you would like to control the price of an oil market and you would like to do it more effectively than OPEC, I'm, I can do it for you. But I'm going to need a balance sheet of about eight trillion dollars to trade with, and that he didn't like. He just didn't like the idea that you couldn't order the price to be something. And that's just very much a difference between. Kind of a command to control your military and, mind and a private sector mind yeah. where we are never in control of the price right you have to be able to react to prices so uh you know along the way about seven or eight years ago i was actually working on a um project helping the navy uh supply chain figure out how to both more cheaply and more securely deliver jet fuel to bagram air force base so Okay. The idea was, you know, as you well know, it's not just the price of the fuel, but, you know, if you can disrupt that supply chain or if you can put contaminants in that fuel before it even gets to the plane, that's an even easier way to win this battle than trying to fight an F-16, right? So um, so we were doing a lot of work on that and trying to help help the, you know, help the Navy figure out if there were ways that we could actually improve that. Along the way, Pentagon asked me to spend time with the Afghan Minister of Mines, who was trying to flog a bunch of mining properties. Um, which were very rich, but you know, Alexander the Great knew they were there. This is not news. <laughs> this is not a new idea. Um, and 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 as part of that, I got to really start to look at the rarest supply chain, which is how we get closer to Tambres. Um, gotcha. And I realized that the, here was a problem that was you know, eminently fixable from the private sector perspective. Right, a lot of especially DC policy types they focus on what the government can do, um, which is often ineffectual for a range of reasons. They're not nimble. They can't move fast enough. They can't be traders. Um, yeah. And we looked at that, this uh, and I said, well, I, we can fix this in the private sector. I don't need any help from, from the government. You just need to let us do what we can do. Um, Deng Xiaoping in the 70s and 80s in China, he started this whole thing. If the Saudis have oil, China has rare earths. And I give I give Deng, uh, Chairman Deng, just a, a, quite frankly, objectively, a huge amount of credit. To realize that in 1982 or 76, whatever the time frame was, that these materials, which there always had uses in electronics, always had uses in miniaturization, but they were nowhere you know, 
the, the industrialization and miniaturization that later came, right? He foresaw he foresaw that. Whether he foresaw that the iPhone is irrelevant, he foresaw that industrialization would move towards miniaturization and um, uh, transportation uses that would require this huge demand. I, I just give him huge credit for that or his team, whoever. That was very impressive. That takes an incredible amount of foresight, honestly, incredible especially amount. back then. Yeah, 50 years in advance. Very smart. Um, so the upshot is China has been very good at investing in their own people, investing in their own economy. You know, of course, the politicians and the newspapers like to make it, you know, to be this good versus evil story. It's not, right? China has got their own, you know, particular issues. One thing I found most fascinating, and this, this is not tangential, this is kind of important to the story, I think, that I just think is the way maps are made, right? No one is surprised to hear that uh, England or Japan are not self-sufficient in food and material, right? It doesn't come as a surprise. You got a lot of people on small island. islands. But, but people look at China and they make the mistake that it is self-sufficient. It is not. Here in America, we have everything we need. We have all the energy. We have all the food we need. We can stay here on our own happy little fortress with two oceans and we can live forever. China cannot. And they've suffered great famines even in the last years because they were not able to import. So the Chinese communists are not preoccupation with having enough inputs to their economy and drive a lot of their decision making. To me, that's not particularly nefarious. It's just reality. When it came to the rare earths industry, they had a huge amount of deposits in these ionic clays in China. They first exploited. And as it evolved, so we had good. No, it's ionic clay. That's a phrase I've never heard. There are three main, there are two main types of ore bodies. So, you know, every mineral will form into different types of <coughs> mineralization that are, uh, some of them are economically viable to extract material from. So, in the rare earths, the main two things are bastazite and ammonazite, are the two types of, of ore bodies from which you extract rare earths. Both have a lot of uranium and thorium in them, so they are radioactive. Uh, and one of them uh, is often referred to as mineral sands. So mineral sands can also become like a clay. So in China, they referred to them as these ionic clay deposits. Um, very messy and goopy to try to get material out of, but they figured out a way to do it, and they were off and running. As their own deposits kind of waned, um, they're still out there, they began to focus more on, look, we don't have to own every mine, but we really want to control the all the, all the high-value-added processing. So... For example, Mountain Pass in California, owned by MP Materials, which is listed on the New York Stock Exchange, they produce a kind of uh, rare earth-rich slurry or concentrate, and they send it all to China, and China processes it there. So the Chinese recently have been very, very focused on making sure that they have sufficient <coughs> input so that they can feed their own industry, right? They, they have their own manufacturing industry, so it's not just trading material, and that is driving a lot of their demand today. So long and the short of it is, uh, as I began to look at this model and figure out what well, we're going to put, you know, Western investment together with uh, mining, processing, and uh, you know, end products, whether magnets or alloys or whatever it's going to be, so especially glasses, that kind of thing. I was introduced to, uh, you know, now my chairman and partner uh, Greg Barnes, who is the chief geologist at uh, Tambres. He found it in in two thousand, staked it, spent fifty million dollars of money on it. Uh, it being being an exploration geologist, 
had been uh, involved in many successful discoveries in his career and realized this was the this is the crowning achievement of a fascinating career. And he was right. It's huge. Um, so I got involved about six years ago. You um, may or may not recall when President Trump offered to buy Greenland. You know, when you told me that, it struck a chord. I was like, man, I remember hearing about this. But, you, I mean, you you had to have some serious insight that, you know, that maybe did not make the news. No, it did, well, we, we left be quiet for a while. So we were basically in the White House briefing staff on the importance of our rare earth mine to U.S. national security because we're privately right. held, right? We're not listed. So for a listed company, you can go look everything up. It's got to be public information. We are not. So we are have been historically fairly... Um, reticent about sharing a lot of information. We're getting less so now. Um, uh, but yeah, so we went, you know, spoke to the White House about that. And then a few days later, President Trump offered to buy the country, which I loved for a range of reasons. That's hilarious. Yeah, it, was, it was great. As, as a good friend of mine who's been in D.C. forever said, like, you just, you man, I think you just made the best liar in the world because I had dinner with him the night before. I said, I hate lobbying. I can't stand going to deal with the government type talent stuff. And uh, that ne- never works out. And he called me. He's like, come on. You had one meeting. You got a president to buy a country. I would say that's a phenomenal track record. Hell yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. It was great. So Put that on your resume. Exactly. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, crowning achievement. But tangentially, part of what I loved about the whole Trump presidency is the people that hated him, their brains don't function. I mean, there's a reason they call it Trump derangement syndrome. <laughs> They, they the, the next day on, on all the Sunday news shows, they were going on and screaming about, it's just impossible. You don't buy countries. Blah, 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 on and on and on. And what was so great is, like, I'm living in Florida. We bought this. Louisiana Purchase, where you are. Right? They, we bought right. this. We bought Alaska. And even more specifically in relation to Greenland, he was the fifth president to have this conversation. We almost bought Greenland in 1850 when Alaska was up for sale for $2 million bucks. Congress, for the first and potentially only time, balked at another price when Greenland was for sale for $4 million. And they were like, eh, that's too much. So had they been smarter, like life would be very Fools. different. Greenland would have been no kidding. already. Anyway, yeah. long and short of it is, because the only question is, what we have is this massive, massive uh, ore body of very high quality with no radiation in it, which is very rare. We've got a great relationship with the Greenland government. We've got a great relationship with the people there. Uh, we are focused on the majority of jobs being Greenlanders, right? We don't want to be one more foreign company that comes in and tells everyone what to do. Um, and just to give a little perspective on this, big mines, small mines, you will happily open up, up, up a mine. And one of the ways you look at it is what's the life of the mine? How long? Like you've got an ore body of X size with Y quality. You mine at Z rate per year. Well, how long are you done till, till there's no more ore left? Our ore body is so large that at 3 million tons per year, if we get to mine, we mine that at a run rate, which meets about currently about 35% of U.S. rare earth demand right now. So just picture that. 3 million tons of, rare, of raw rock comes down to about 30% of U.S. current demand. Holy cow. That demand will get larger over time. But at that rate, my, my, my mine, we run out, of, run out of ore to mine in 800 years. So, holy shit! Which means effectively, it is it is limitless, right? We can mine at five times that rate if we if the government lets us and if we technology technologically mm-hmm. can do it. Um, and our mine alone 
basically puts a stake through the heart of the Chinese monopoly. And they'll they'll survive, right? Now we'll just have a competitive world, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why it's so exciting and why it's um, e- economically very attractive for those involved, and it's very important for uh, uh, all sorts of companies that need these materials for inputs to their products, and a lot of it goes to the military, like laser guidance systems, military you know, missile systems, planes. Uh, I think a uh, submarine takes about 8,000 tons of this material, so... Um, wow. Yeah, so there's a lot of lot of stuff that goes into this. I think every jet takes something like 800 kilograms or something. Anyway, that's what we are. <clears throat> it's vast. Um, we're hoping to start uh, production very soon, uh, and you know we're very happy both from a uh, economic perspective, but also you know the world's a better place if there's competition, and you know, having mm-hmm. one country have be very very dominant in one thing, whether they think it's good for them or not, in the end. It usually turns out to be better that we have kind of you know multiple sources for multiple materials, so no one in the world can get too stressed about people getting you know people owning one thing and being very dominant about it. Well, what you have is definitely better than sitting on a gold mine. Yes. So, uh, what what's something about the production value that may seem that seems obvious to you guys that are involved, but may not be seem so obvious to the layman? <laughs> That's a good question because you know it's funny. That phrase, a gold mine, is is a is a proverbial saying, right? You know, oh, it's a gold mine. Right. The funny thing is, you know, I don't want your gold mine. Keep it. <laughs> I've got my yeah, rent. No kidding. Thank you very much. Um, well, one of the things that's that's kind of crucial about it is um, gold, gold. Gold goes into a bunch of different uh, uh, engineering bits and pieces throughout computers and the rest of it, but there are you know gold deposits all over the world, so it's not that hard to find. Um, what we've got is critical for everything related to kind of the energy transition, as they refer to it, as advanced alloys for for uh, anything involving uh, moving motors, right? So if you're going to build an industrial plant in the, in the middle of Illinois, well, you can build a 600-ton iron electromagnet because who cares, right? Space isn't an issue. But mm-hmm. if you want something that moves like a drone or a plane or a car, well, the motor has to be light, right? So you're talking about power density, so more energy output per pound of material, whatever your metric is. Mm-hmm. And for those applications, what we have is absolutely critical. It, it, that's yeah, They've got the critical minerals list that Europe has one, US has one, They're, they largely overlap. And it's because a lot of the advanced stuff, including the equipment that we're recording on is impossible without some of those yeah. materials. And so advanced society, uh, just these, these things are absolutely critical. And so we've got um, something that will help advance a lot of industrial uses, uh, create entirely new use cases, right? Another new alloys. Like if you look at spinning turbines, for example, right? those massive, massive ones. If you tried to make those just out of aluminum, that would be too heavy. They would crumble and, and crush, right? So um, the gadolinium that we have a lot of um, goes into a lot of those, you know, each blade has got a few hundred pounds of it. And without that, you could not get the strength, rigidity, lightweightness that you require. So you know, so many of the things in our lives that we just take for granted just would literally not be possible if we didn't yeah. have these. So I'd ra- I would much rather have that than a mine full of, you know, a pretty material that's mainly for jewelry. 
So the mind that you you have, this is operational now and, and contributing to. Okay. Oh, it's it's right now technically a, a permitted mine. We have an exploitation license, which means it's a long process you have to go through the government to prove the ore body what you say it is that the environmental all all mm. and the Greenland government has got a you know a very well thought out mining law. Uh, every country has their own. One would argue that the Congo, where cobalt is mined by children in death pits, is does not have yeah. a good mining law or, or any mining law. Right. Uh, it's just savagery. So um, at gunpoint. At gunpoint, and we um, it's been fascinating to watch because one of the things that is most interesting being in the mining industry is that a lot of the folks who would scream on and on about you know climate change, global warming, pick whatever they call it, um, and are very much in favor of an energy transition, however they characterize that. They're also kind of live, they live in a child's fantasy world because they also hate mining. Well, you you got to kind of pick. There's no free lunch in this world. If you want this switch to a low-carbon intensive energy future, you need what I have and what many other people in many other mines have, nickel, cobalt, all that. Um but you've got this problem in the U.S., especially where I think, except for two states, like it is this absurdly onerous process to get a mine permitted. There is one nickel deposit in the upper peninsula of Michigan. There's one of the richest nickel deposits in the world. And they've been trying to get that thing permitted for 18 years. Right. And it's because Holy of the shit. stupidity of, their, of Michigan's law. Basically, a rational mining policy would say Company X has explored this, found this ore body, and they want to turn it into a mine. They're going to come to the legislature and say, here's all the evidence from what we've done. Here's our application. Here's our environmental report. Here's all the reports you want us to have. And now we're going to have a fixed six-month, nine-month process. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Instead, what you have is this ongoing idiocy where anyone can object, right? So... You and they're not stupid. They wait. You, Brandon, you show up first to the first town hall meeting and say, "My dog Fluffy will lose his mind at the trucks rumbling by. You need to do a seismic study to make sure my dog Fluffy won't lose his mind." And that kicks off a six-month study process. And guess what happens five months and twenty-eight days into that process? You, Zach, show up. My birds will lose their crap if they if you have drilling and blasting. You got to do seismic studies to show me the brilliant blast. You get the picture. So there's lines one at a time. A rational process would say, let's take a look at Fluffy, the birds, and everything else all at once, and we'll make a decision as to whether we're going to mine or not. That's how rational countries do this. But for 48 states at least, it's this ridiculous "not in my backyard" crap. Whereas modern mining, the other thing which is, is so great, I appreciate objectively, however infuriating it is, is the anti-mining crowd. When they talk about mining, they take that stock photograph from 1894 of the eight-year-old with a lunch pail covered in coal dust as if that's reflective of mining today. It's ridiculous. I've been I've a member of the New York Culture Association. I've been in mines in Kentucky, West Virginia, where I would happily mm-hmm. and have lunch on the floor, right? It's clean. It's perfectly clean. There's no more coal dust. There's no more black lung. There's no more, you know, all that. Um, do I blame the mining industry for not being more aggressively vocal about this, right? What was that, that uh, Avatar, or the first one? I don't know. Oh, yeah. Avatar. It was these beautiful, wonderful, magical creatures in this lovely Edenic paradise. 
And then what was going to ruin the paradise? Mining companies, right? So (laughs) the anti-mining brigades have got a phenomenal rhythm and pitch to spin their story about how awful mining is. And all we've got is facts, which are like, your life wouldn't exist. You couldn't make that movie if we didn't have a mine. But, you know, we got to get better at telling that story. (laughs) Well, you talked about how, like, Michigan has, like, the largest, what you said, I think you said, you said nickel. What was it? It's a really rich nickel deposit, which is necessary for car manufacture. And it's like a rail spur from Detroit. Madness that it's not perfect. Okay. So you said, like, Michigan has the largest nickel. I know there's a lot of different other type of – resources and uh, like oil specifically and a whole bunch of other stuff across the United States or right off our shores within our, yep. our waters that we just don't touch. And it's always kind of what you said, the, the current, Oh, it's going to hurt the environment or we don't want to do anything like that. Do you think maybe that the U S government, and I, I had this idea for a while. Do you think maybe the U S government uses climate change as the current excuse not to do that so that we pretty much dry up as much resources from outside until those are up. And then when those are all up, the U S now would have having used up all your resources now has all the leftover resources. If that makes sense. Cause we hadn't touched it yet. I like the idea you're giving, um, you're giving these folks way too much credit, right? So if, yeah, if the US that's what I've been told. Company, <laughs> maybe, right. But that's, that's a long term yeah. play stretching across multiple administrations. Um, they certainly use climate change as the boogeyman for absolutely everything, um, which I can touch on at length later, but I want to keep my blood pressure down. Um, but yeah, no, it's an interesting idea. I mean, we may well end up with having a lot more resources because we didn't exploit them, but I think that result will be an accident more than more than a deliberate policy. No one's that clever. And quite frankly, you need coordination between the federal government and every state, which has rights. So Florida, the reason we don't have an income tax is we've got oil and gas rights in the Gulf of Mexico and off the Atlantic shore. So we have revenue from royalties, so we don't need revenue from income tax. Same with other states who have, you know, properties and their and their land. So I may not understand what all of the minerals in your mine are or where they're used, but are you able to talk about which ones that the mind has, or is this something that you guys don't divulge? Yeah, just out of curiosity. It's fine, we're, 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 we're talking about it more. So one of the things that we have, which is um, uh, it's, it's somewhat of a gift from God in that I mentioned the bastazite and the monazite, these two main mineral mineralization types that, that contain a lot of rare earth. Ours is a third type, which is not as common. Uh, it's called a udiolite. And it has a couple of properties which are great. No, no uranium or thorium, so no radiation, at least, or to the background level, that's in your backyard soil, right? There's always some kind of, but not enough that when you mine it, it turns into a concentrated amount that is actually radioactive. So we have something that's radiation free. It is uh, aside from the rare earths, well, there are thirteen or fifteen of those, depending on who you're talking to. Aside from those, we have massive amounts of zirconium. Hafnium, tantalum, and niobium. So zirconium is used in a lot of steel alloys. Um, uh, Hafnium is used in uh, uh, radiation-controlling rods for uh, nuclear reactors, uh, tantalum and niobium, other alloys. There are, we've got four minerals in the deposit that are profitable in and of themselves. So before we mine any of the rare earths, um, this is rather important, I'll tell you why. So we've got a profitable mine just running 
then mining the zirconium, hafnium, tantalum, and niobium, which if you say it fast enough is the Gilbert and Sullivan refrain. Uh, and then the, 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 awesome. the, then the, the other thing is that when you look at rare earths, conceptually they're broken into light rare earths and heavy rare earths. And that's just a nomenclature and based on physical chemistry, it's not worth kind of going into why. But lanthan of Syrian, praseodymium, neodymium, uh, and europium tend to be called the light rarest, then everything from gadolinium on through yttrium, which are the last you know, six or seven, those are called the heavies. 27 to 30% of the rare earths in our ore body are the heavies. And that matters because the heavies are a lot more expensive. So lutetium will sell for $800 to $2,000 a kilogram, depending upon the market, depending upon the time. Whereas lanthanum and cerium will sell between eighty cents and two fifty, two dollars and fifty cents per kilogram. So if you got a lot of lanthanum, that's great. But on a per kilogram basis, you'd rather have what we have. So we have a, a ore body incredibly rich in the heavies like samarium and gadolinium and, and, and yttrium, uh, lutetium. So what we have is uh, an incredibly rich source of the harder to find material that are often used in a very advanced manufacturing, advanced alloys. So because of that, um, you know, a big chunk of, of, of our focus now as we move towards building the mine and getting the and, and materials out is how do we most efficiently mine this? How do we, you know, most cost effectively mine it? Because in mining, logistics and cost control are everything, right? Anything is, is doable in theory, right? What's that great old seals line? That you know, there's no problem in the world that will not move if if you know given enough um, properly applied high explosives, right? So uh, okay, you you can always get it, but can you get right. it at a cost that's worth it to the market? And we think we can. So it's a uh, it's 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 an important ore body in the sense that the one of the Chinese main routes to, to competition is say they make gadolinium oxide, right? So that's the thing that they're making a lot of money at. They will wait until a privately owned, a Western owned mine goes into production. And then when, you know, my mine, my new mine starts to sell gadolinium oxide, the Chinese will then dump that product on world markets, driving the price down, hopefully to put more business. But you'll notice I told you I've got a profitable mine before I sell any rares. So that means is my cost of production is literally negative. So you can, they can drop prices to zero all day long, and I can still make money by by giving away for a penny a kilogram. Here comes that proverbial <laughs> steak you were talking about. Yeah, so that's it. So it's 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 it rebalances world trade. It provides mm-hmm. a competitive source, uh, and it's just going to make you know the trading environment better for everyone. They they're going to be a little grumpy at first, but in the end, it's going to bring you know cost discipline to them as well, which will improve their industry. Just like I'm, a better I'm kind stance of surprised stance. that you were talking so many about... people don't. Oh, oh go ahead. Sorry, Ryan. I was gonna say uh, you were talking about how like minerals can be radioactive and minerals can like be non-radioactive or whatever, and yours are non-radioactive, which is better. What? Yeah. What drives that? Is that just normal? Like maybe the Earth's systems? They're too close. It's to the inclusion America's nukes or something. What's <laughs> inclusive of what? Which elements are in your body? Right, so the yeah, okay. narrower body are rare earths, hafnium, tantalum, niobium, and zirconium in recoverable amounts. The the 
the uh, elements that go into a bastazite, for example, um, don't have any zirconium or, or uh, tantalum. They don't have any of hafnium, but they do have uranium and thorium. So uranium, thorium, and plutonium are the main uh, radioactive elements, right? They're, they have a half-life, they decay, they give off radioactivity. You know, go watch Oppenheimer. They'll go through some of that some more, right? Um, so that's why. Whether they have, it's, it's purely a measure of whether they have uranium and thorium in it. It's not impossible to mine those materials. You just need to know how to do it, right? You need to, once because once the, once you start to concentrate it down from the raw host rock, if you've got something that has, you know, 0.4% uranium in it, well, you can handle that rock perfectly fine. Nothing's going to happen to you. But when you crush it down, extract the uranium, and start to turn it into yellow cake, well, now that's dangerous. You can't be handling yellow cake, right? You need to have you know, lead around it, especially equipment. So it adds cost to complexity and often serious regulation. So if you've got regulation, cost complexity, and, and danger – that's added into your mining that just adds cost. And it, it draw, at, at, at the at the best it adds cost, at the worst it's dangerous. But we don't have to worry about that. We don't have any of those problems. No, I was gonna say that I'm kind of surprised. It's the topic of rare earth minerals has come up, like I said, a lot over the past couple of years. And, but I'm surprised that honestly your mind doesn't come up more often when it talks about uh, advantages or at least things that are on the horizon for the United States to kind of level the playing field. Because you talk to the majority of people and it, it almost seems like the situation is hopeless. I've heard people bring up uh, a mine in Mexico and about how the United, the United States doesn't do enough to go after this location. It seems yeah. like we already have an ace in the hole, so to speak. I'm not sure when production you know, could begin and how viable um, you know, the life support of rare earth minerals in the United States could be without it. Um, but it just, it surprises me because here we are talking about it. And this seems, like I said, like that ace in the hole. Yep. You know, it is, uh, we've been, we've been, fairly, first of all, we're privately held. So, so you don't have to share information to the market as you would if you're a public company. Second, um, you know, we've now been speaking to three different U.S. administrations about this. Um, and only a few months ago, I frankly decided that kind of being quiet publicly wasn't getting them to give me any money anyway. So kind of basically I'm now calling the U.S. government out on the carpet in a, in a good way, right? And part of the reason I say that is um, unlike China, which has a very command and control economy, right? And they the, the central government tells the banks who to give money to. They control who gets a license. They support their industry. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the biggest smugglers in China, you know, they uh, they built this $1.8 billion processing plant and sold it to him for a dollar so that he could then make, yeah, we talk about industrial policy, right? But as, as yeah. Americans, as a taxpayer, I don't want us to do that. I don't want the U.S. government picking winners and losers. I don't. They have a terrible track record of doing so, right? Um, and, of course, everyone like me who's got this incredibly important asset critical to national security Says well, in this instance, we should make it. We should make an exception, right? Uh, and generally, I'm a rock solid, you know, low taxes, strong defense, get 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 the government out of our lives, guy. But then all of a sudden, I'm sitting here, and it is a complicated proposition to start any mine, right? Um, and I think part of the reason President Trump offered to buy the country is that it would just be easier for for the U.S. to grant me the license than than not. Um, but when it comes to 
uh, uh, you know, the U.S. government just writing checks. Um, I work with a lot of really talented people, commerce, energy, Department of State, um, yeah, yeah, a couple of different, you know, XM, DFC, a bunch of organizations of close relationships in the government, DOD. Um, and the way the budgetary cycle is set up, there just isn't a slush fund out of which someone can write a check. So, you know, part of my critique has been I haven't wanted to, you know, rock the boat or rattle the cage, right? Milton Friedman, the great economist, his great line was, you know, hell hath no fury like a bureaucrat scorned. So I'm not, I'm really not pointing any fingers at anyone. Everyone I meet individually is doing a great job and is really thoughtful and trying to find a way to support us. But systemically, the mechanisms just don't exist. Like the, the, the Secretary of Commerce doesn't have a random $8 billion slush fund out of which he can write equity checks. And so yeah. I think there are some thoughtful ways in which um, the government is, is, is trying to be helpful, right? And they certainly have been you know, great with us. Um, and the only reason I kind of say I'm you know, somewhat calling them on the carpet somewhat facetiously is if this spurs a little public kind of public shaming or a public, not shaming, a public announcement of like, look, we've been talking to three administrations, all of whom say this is really important. The U.S. The United States government funds all kinds of stuff all over the world. How are we not funding this? I guess is my question. And if that sparks some creativity in the halls of Congress or in the White House, great. Hopefully they can be helpful. I feel like if I was in a position to be running for public office, especially for the presidency, that you're somebody I'd want to talk to um, and then take along for the ride, so to speak, and try to uh, exhibit essentially the sorts of problems that you could solve. And I feel like that would be a really intelligent way of marketing yourself as a leader. Um, so it kind of surprises me and, again, kind of reaffirms the fact that I feel like some of these people don't really want to solve problems um, for others. Awesome. But, um, yeah, that's – that's it seems like a no brainer to me, but who am I? So well, it's it's funny, but what you described as a political calculation, right? So that yeah. is talking to the politicians about this. Um, I sometimes speak with them, but literally, I I much prefer the kind of career staff, right, who actually are working on trying to solve problems. Um, and and having <laughs> having involved slightly, um, you know, getting. Getting clear messaging across on such a complex topic in sound bites that like a senatorial or a presidential candidate could use, it's an art form and it's tricky. Um, so I'm with you all the way, right? Like and it's it's and both of you come up with really great ideas in terms of well, surely if someone who had the understanding and the checkbook heard this, well, why is this even an issue? Um, and it's not absolutely, uh, completely their fault in a sense, you know, we found all the financing we needed first, we spent our own money and then to build the mine, we found all the financing we needed in early 2020. And then an irony fit for the ages, the guy who was uh, stepping up to fund the next chunk of development caught the Wuhan virus and died five weeks after agreeing to fund us. Oh, damn. Yeah, that was tragic. And he was a Convenient. great American patriot. Great. You can't make it up. Uh, and then, then the world through this this uh, virus hysteria, uh, which everyone yeah. tries to forget now, but like it's stopped rational conversations for eighteen to twenty months at least. Absolutely. So in terms of whether we're on track or not, yeah, I think we are. I mean, we're having the right conversations. We've got the right technical partnerships and the capital 
formation is happening. So we'll get it in motion soon. Hopefully, I'd rather, I'd rather start sooner than later. And that, to me, is, is the um, is the place where not just the U.S. but I've seen other democratically elected governments kind of add a little value, give a little nudge to get the cart going. Right? We could use that little you know primer in the gas tank right now, um, but you know the private sector usually moves faster than the government, so we'll just you know we have every conversation, yeah. and any one of them could say yes. We're in due diligence to the number of people who will join us in this journey. Uh, we'd love it if there was some portion of the um, the federal government that could be part of it, and hopefully they can, right? Um, yeah. I've, I've seen stranger things. I grew up in a family of government uh, military contractors, so it's a weird process, right? It's nothing, 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 and then bounty. So mm-hmm. that's where we are. So what what rare earth minerals is the United States most poor in? All of them. All of them. Yeah, I mean, we have got MP Materials at West has got the first four lights, so lanthanum, cerium, and then a little more, a little bit of praseodymium and neodymium. Um, but aside from that, uh, there, 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 are, there are a few deposits here and there sprinkled throughout the, the, the Western Hemisphere in general. Uh, and part of the part of the headache is that all of them, like we're so large, we could justify building our own entire processing facilities, right? And that's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars. But if you've got a mine that might have a rich deposit, but it's got a life of mine of like 12 years, like you literally, the economics don't work. You can't afford. You're not going to build your own right. processing infrastructure. So then mm-hmm. it down to, well, the only game in town is what the Chinese have demanded, which is that you send your material to them. And amazingly enough, they strip a lot of the margin out of it. So you've got a lot of things that are physically possible, but are right now economically not possible. That's part of that's all of mining is about making sure that you can get this stuff out of the ground cost effective. Absolutely. Well, as you said before, competition is healthy and a good thing. I'm just glad that uh, we've got this gives us an edge with the Chinese because sometimes it feels like we're we're falling behind. So, yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a little less apocalyptic about the Chinese. Like they, um, I don't criticize people for working hard and competing, right? In a few places, they cut corners, yeah. But all the American Industrial Revolution was based on industrial espionage against the Europeans and stealing their tech. So I'm not going to cry about that. Um, and they work really, really, really hard. Their educational system is different. It's heavily focused on material science and kind of um, expertise in engineering. And they're not, you know, again, generically speaking, the way oh. they've molded society Arguably, in, in like the 80s and 90s, I've heard from people who lived there then, China was as open as Paris or New York, right? There was none of this, you know, paranoia of, of committees and social scores and all this crap. That, that was a regressive step that President Xi took. Um, so, you know, everyone I've worked with, you know, uh, out of China, a bunch of guys that good friends of mine I went to business school with, like individually, hardworking you know, really hardworking, like really, really hardworking, and they've earned their spot in the sun. Um, and they've got demographic issues from their one-child policy, and they've got severe societal pressure from the fact that, you know, they can't hide from their own people what they're doing to the Uyghurs. Like, they've got a lot of problems. And yeah. they've decided to, erroneously, I believe, in, in spite of everything they should know about history, including their own, is like, 
tamping down on society never works. No. Never works, right? It eventually it erupts. So I think they're um they're overextended the because of a one party system that uh where the government demanded banks lend to things like construction projects and industrial projects, many of which a Western bank would never invest in because you couldn't see a return on investment. I think they're in a much more fragile state. Um, so as a as a boogeyman for the politicians to play around with, it's great. But um, you know, a lot of America is is reindustrializing in relation to that's not. Good. Yeah, you have to. So I mean, that's that. You know, I'll shut up here. But that is my overarching goal: is the reindustrialization of the United States because the problems we see with disaffected young men and heroin addiction and suicide all that is because all the all the jobs that you know strong young men used to have in this country a lot of them were taken away and shipped overseas also we could buy cheap dvds at, at walmart and that shit's got to end and that's part of what we're focused on absolutely and i couldn't agree more with what you said just the the way that their minds work with you know, working hard and putting the effort in, it definitely outpaces the United States right now, I feel like. I feel like young people in our country are not focused on those sorts of things. And you can't blame them for their industrialness. And in, in many ways, objectively, right, it's something to be admired. And and I think that what you said, too, about reindustrializing our country is such an important step in kind of pulling us out of this um, nihilistic doldrums, right? It kind of seems like we're in. Um, but it, it's something that the American innovative spirit has always been there. And I feel like we've always found a way to do this. So, you know, you, like you said, you're, you're a piece of that, that puzzle, I feel like, absolutely. Um, but one thing I, I definitely, you know, wish is, is more people would see those things in the United States as the opportunity that it really does hold and pay attention less to the naysayers, because it, it is so evident to, if you pay attention to see how the United States still is very much a land of opportunity. Yeah, you bet. I mean, you guys think, are, and your cohort. What has been your experience of the guys that you know who are, who are not who are not in the military, in the private sector? What are they doing? Is 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 it? Everyone's got a really great job, you know, and something really useful, or some of them are doing jobs they would rather be doing something else. I mean, what what's your sense of the kind of private market for guys your age? Well, um, I have a few friends, uh, family members who own their own businesses. Um, and they either came by them through familial ties or they built it from the ground up. And um, considering they're my age, I'm 36 years old, uh, and they have built a business from the ground up. When people tell me that the American dream is dead, that you can't do these things, it, you know, I could point to people that I know in my life that prove that wrong. Yeah. And we're, we are not without our problems. And that's the truth. No country is. But to sit there and say that it's dead is not true at all. And I think there's just not enough people anymore that want to put the work in to do this. And whether it's going to school and getting a degree, becoming a nurse, something like that, right? You can make so much money doing that. It's a lot of work. Um, you know, and it's something to be admired, but you can still do these things and you have the freedom to choose to do those things. So um, the drug problems like you talked about, I mean, I live out here in California. It's it's honestly, it's sad, incredible, ridiculous, all, all the adjectives you can come up with, all the negative connotations. Yep. 
And, um, but there is, there's so much untapped potential, I feel like, and people, um, the millennials, my age, right. Um, we can be very industrious. You know, we, we grew up both ways playing outside and coming in and playing video games and on the computer. And so we understand, I feel like a lot of people my age tend to understand both sides, right? My parents made me go outside and play. My parents made me do things on my own. At the same time, I understand how a computer works, right? Um, so this this generation has a ton of potential understanding hard work and then understanding the technological aspects of it and, and having the the mind to get into it and learn and not be afraid of it. So um, I see a lot of people, I try to surround myself with people who want to be industrious um, and take care of their families. So, but I mean, what you, Zach, you may have a, a different experience. Well, I was going to kind of touch on what you said about putting in the hard work. Like, um, I think a lot of, younger Americans today, they see like what their parents have or like what their older friends have or whatever. And they just assume that because they're in America, they're just supposed to get to that step immediately. Like that's where they start. Right. And I don't think they realize that there's a lot of time and effort that went into that. Like my little sister, uh, she lives in Portland, Oregon, and she's got a good paying job. She's got a degree, all this type of stuff. She did everything right. And then she was complaining about how she's like, oh, I'll never be able to buy a home. I can't buy a home, all this type of stuff. And right. I was confused by that because her her current rental, like, I think it's like two thousand, like six hundred something dollars a month. And in my mind, I'm like, you could definitely buy Mortgage. a home. Like there's mortgages less than that. Yep. And then her counter argument is, well, you'll never find a home for like that price in Portland. I went me being the analytical, I'm gonna like prove you wrong person. I immediately went to <laughs> Zillow. I found like like a hundred and something homes that are for sale in that price range. But the thing is, is that they're not like really nice um, shiplack walls. They're not like the clean, modern kitchens with like the nice stuff, you know, they're older homes that probably need some TLC or whatever, but it's still a home. And I don't think like people realize like the home, you're like the home Gresham's parent owns or the home, my, like the home, my dad owns, he just, finished building himself like this year he's 60 something and he now has his dream home but he worked his butt off to get to that i don't like the home i grew up in did not have like nice cabinets it did not have like all like i'm pretty sure there was like a beam in the like i remember a beam being in like the kitchen and it just like was rotting and went all the way across the ceiling like (laughs) You have to put in hard work to get stuff and, and, and the hard work will pay off. And I think a lot of current generation, they just expect to be at the finish line because I think their whole time, you know, oh, we're in America, it's the greatest country ever, all this type of stuff. So in their mind, they're thinking, it's kind of like when like um, when the big immigration was coming to the United States and people used to joke that, oh, the roads are made of gold and all that type of stuff, right? And then they get there and it's like, no, it's not. New York City stinks like piss and it's no gold anywhere. But it's the it's it's that perception. It's the perception. They think they should already start at the end. They don't realize yeah. how good they have it currently. Like the poorest American is like the top two percent, three percent or something like that of like the richest in like the world. Yes. And they'll be sitting there complaining about how they can't buy a home while they're all tweeting on their $1,000 phone and watching NFL Monday night football on their 4k TV with no interruptions with running water and can go yeah. down the street, and get food whenever they want. So it's like, it's, 
it's just perception. I think is the big issue. I, I would totally agree. I've, I've, I've been saying for years that at whatever, whoever it is, you get elected to the Senate, Congress, any office, whatever, or you get appointed to a senior level position or any civil service position in the federal government, we instantly choose a spot on the map and we fly yeah. to say somewhere, somewhere in, uh, let's call it Namibia. Let's call it Congo, right? Okay. Drop you off with a hundred dollars, no identifying papers and say, we're going to pick you up in 30 days in Brazzaville. Go. <laughs> and if you, if you make it great, you, you get to take your seat in Congress. But oh my, will you have a very different perspective on the world? <laughs> no kidding. Yep. And I don't care where it, it is. I it's dropped you in Laredo, Texas with a hundred bucks and no identification and no way to get it, and no phone. And you got to make it to, you know, Fargo. Same, similar. Right. Tricky. It's going to be tricky. Can you do it? Um, people, you're right. People just have no sense. And there is an entire, you know, competitive poverty industry in this country that, there are people making money off of, off of whining victimhood, right? There, are, you, you, mm -hmm. you whine a lot. You elect people to Congress who tell you how shitty the country is, and then they vote to give you give you goodies, and you take it. Um, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of that. I, I still remain encouraged because um, you know we we uh, grew up in New York, and then we moved. As I said, we we left New York and moved to America, and uh, I'll be I, back one day. I'm encouraged by. Um, the younger people I see, cause I, you know, kids in high school, and and uh, I see a lot of hardworking folks. I see you know two jobs, um, you know doing ROTC, whatever it is, they they're they're oh, yeah. applying themselves. So, well, the media on both sides, Fox likes to point to useless, lazy whiners who sit around and do nothing but tweet, you know, insults about America, and then yeah, everyone else, you know, also tweets about them, but like says they're like you know, unhelped victims that require government assistance forever. I think all of that should be ignored. Um, funnily enough, you know, kind of on that in, in terms of you both pointed out is, is it's the manipulation and perception, which is what I, I just urge everyone to try to avoid. We, we're now coming up on the third election where people are going to vote against someone, not for someone. And that is just so awful for this country. Um, mm -hmm. If these two old dinosaurs go at it again, I mean, enough with the boomers. Go home. They cook yeah. this to your grandchildren. Shut up. There's nothing more embarrassing. I'll say it. You know, I I, I have all the respect for Janet Yellen or or, or, or or the work that Janet Yellen has done in her career. At this point, the absurdity of an 83-year-old great-grandma warbling about cryptocurrency as the head of the treasury is an embarrassment. Ridiculous. It is. It's ridiculous. We look like yeah. idiots. This is the most qualified person in America to run the treasury. Are you kidding yeah. me? If you cornered her, you find a twenty-year-old who'd be way better at it. Yeah. If you cornered her and asked her without anybody to assist her to explain to you what blockchain meant, she probably couldn't do that. No clue. So yeah. part of what you know uh, uh, we're all battling is the damn boomers. And actually, I I I I, I split that yeah. up. Because I refer to the draft dodger generation, which is the half of the boomers that dodged Vietnam and yeah. hid out in universities. Um, and it was the, 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 the I, I have this I have this debate a lot and, and, and it causes some ruffled feathers, but I stick to it. The single 
the absolute, with the massive exception of slavery, the single stupidest policy this government ever did was the educational draft deferment in Vietnam. Because if you go to any university in the country, right, every chapel or memorial you've got, depending how old the university is, right, Revolutionary War, Civil War, World War One, World War Two, Korea, and half of them don't have a fucking plaque for Vietnam because no one went. Or if they were, there are three where the names for Korea were there 200, right? And so right. what happened in effect was this stupid idea was if your daddy could pay for you to go to, you know, idiot state, you went and you did four years. And all of a sudden, holy shit, the war's still going on. Well, I guess I got to get a master's degree. Two years later, oh, my God, the war's still going on. My, my number's up. I got to go. I got to report for duty. Oh, well, I guess I got a PhD. So basically, the American people ended up with a bunch of cowards, left-leaning cowards, who became the, prof the professorial class. And from an anthropological perspective, and this, this drives me nuts, from an anthropological perspective, every society has ceremonies of adulthood, right? So some of them are very explicit, you know, like, you know, 19-year-old 10-day circumcision ceremonies and you know, among the Zulu, for example, right? There are, there are ceremonies that mark the transition to adulthood. Every draft dodger, by definition, never became a man because he never stood up and like that. took the responsibilities that men take in the society. So you've got a bunch of overeducated children who have been tenured professors for 40 years teaching Marxist drivel to our children. And that's why we've ended up with the shit we're in right now. And we need to reverse that. So that's a that's lot. That's the sound clip of the episode right there. Oh, yeah. There you go. Wrap that up. <laughs> that's it. And a nice little bow. Ship it. It's the worst thing that's ever happened to this country. And they're still in fucking power. And they yeah. got to go. They got to go. Enough. So Zach and I have had this conversation before. What would you say to some sort of mandatory either military or civil service prior to like um, anything else? Like Done. public office, right? I would, I, would, yeah. I would do it right now. And if they said to me, you know, you're 53, I'd say, great. I will go fucking do it the best I can. If I pass that, they'll throw ice on me. And everyone – I let him <laughs> but what's, Change what's, your socks. What's hilarious is – exactly, when I um I got out of college in '93, and went and spoke to uh, spoke to the Navy, um, and you know peace had broken out completely and utterly, right? So they love they love my test scores, they love the degree, they love the you know, Arabic skills, they loved all that, and you know the guys I spoke to, um, when one was a recruiter obviously, and he's just like, I don't know what we're gonna be doing, like 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 yeah. <laughs> ended the Berlin Wall is falling, like it's all over. And then, you know, fast forward and I'm, you know, walking away from the Trade Center on 9-11. So uh, you know, I, I got out of this weird period where I looked at the military, but like they weren't hiring. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, and I was, I was more than happy to go do service then and I didn't. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that that sort of national cohesiveness and that encompasses everything, as you as you pointed out. It doesn't have to be picking up a gun. If you're a Quaker and you are, you know, morally against, fine, great, we'll find something else for you to do. But mm -hmm. two years of so a little bit of training, get rid of some of that belly fat, you know, wake up when someone tells you to, not when you want to. I think yeah. that's stunning for everybody. I agree. Yeah, I, I would yeah. like to hear. Um, I mean, Zach, unless you have something else to add to that, but about yeah, the, I was just gonna. Uh, go I was gonna say. Uh, 
I agree with your perception thing. We kind of going a little bit further back, like, you know, you being like tricked by perception or whatever, because before I joined the Air Force and all I knew was Monroe, Washington and a little bit of like Seattle and Everett and stuff. Yep. Then I was in Japan for three years and was like, whoa, what the heck? And then I was in South America, then the Middle East, then Africa and all this type of stuff. Um, so yeah, definitely perception goes into it. And then when I became a recruiter, you know, up to that time, you know, new era becoming and be like, why are they laying these freaking jack wagons in here? These guys are a bunch of idiots. Like, what the heck? Yada, yada, yada. I sound like a typical NCO, like back in my Air Force, we, you know, all this type of stuff. And then I became a recruiter. I was like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Right. Then I became a recruiter. I was like, oh, wait a minute. This all makes sense. Never mind. <laughs> like, I now have this perception. Um, but yeah. And you, I, I think I'm going to steal Brandon's Thunder because I think I know where he was going. But you talked about how you walked out of the Twin Towers on 9-11. Yeah, I stole your thunder, Brandon. Um, what was that like? You were there yeah. the day pretty much in – like that's the day America changed. Foreign policy changed. The world changed. Like the TSA, which is mighty as they are, which they suck, was now about to be erected. Yeah. Like this is the day all these things changed. What was that day like, firsthand knowledge of being at Ground Zero? It was a lot. Luckily, I actually had a uh, um, a, bre- I had a, a breakfast meeting uh, scheduled for nine thirty uh, in um, Tower Two on September eleventh uh, at Bridge uh, Data Services, um, and that was moved the last minute to uh, uh, the thirteenth, uh, so two days later, and uh, I was so I was in Midtown. Um, and now I, you know, I lived in North Africa before I lived in South Africa. So I, um, Islamic terrorists had tried to kill me three times already. Uh, so I'd lived through three bombings, uh, before September 11th. Um, they didn't get me, uh, and they weren't they me, you know. a precious mind. You're like the modern, modern, unsinkable Molly Brown over there. <laughs> yeah. So sh- maybe so far. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I was, uh, interviewing someone and my assistant came in and said, you know, a plane just flew into the World Trade Center. And I instantly knew, I mean, instantly, this is not a mistake. Um, and so, uh, you know, you know, ran, you know, went outside. And at the time, um, we were living in Brooklyn Heights, right across the Brooklyn Bridge. And my wife at the time um, was had the habit of, you know, going over the bridge and walking around lower Manhattan and you know, coming back up right, right around that time. So, you know, cell phone communication went out. I came out um, on the building was staring down Fifth Avenue um, when the uh, second plane hit. And uh, then just started sprinting south. As people sprinting north, because all I had in my mind was, you know, finding out whether my wife was all right. And so I was just sprinting straight down, and the cops were trying to get people to go north. But there was all such chaos that, you know, like they give a shit. Some idiot wants to run towards this and go right ahead, right? So, um, and by the time I'd already gotten there, they, they'd already come down and like smoke and the like gas everywhere. So I was, I remember having the strangest thought. So then I walked over um, the Manhattan Bridge to get to Brooklyn. And I remember all of those videos you see from World War II of all these people, these refugees walking along like in suits and, and you and I remember some, I don't know if I formulated the thought, but all of a sudden it came into clarity. Like, yeah, they're wearing suits because they didn't expect to be refugees today. 
<laughs> this wasn't like wow. you planned for it. Like, shit, someone just invaded my country, dropped bombs, and I'm getting away from it, and I'm wearing what I'm wearing. Because um, a buddy of mine I do business with is a, a, a former ranger. Says he goes to the uh, he goes and shoots at the range all the time, and he goes wearing his suit from work. And people like look at him like you're at the range. Like, why are you? Why are you wearing a suit? He's because he, he's yeah. like because I train like I fight. I don't know when it's going to happen. <laughs> so yeah, no one's going to give me time to put on comfy clothing. Anyway, yeah. um, makes sense. And then we got I got over the uh, bridge. My wife was wife was fine, and uh, we were there on the promenade when um, the other two smaller towers came down and. The dust was coming across, and um, mainly, I've forgotten most of it because it was so awful. But you know, seeing people flying out of the sky, and um, the most thing I remember was that uh, once we got into Brooklyn, so people who hadn't been, who weren't there, they just took they went the first place they could to get off Manhattan Island, right? But they weren't supposed to be there. They're supposed to be on Long Island or New Jersey or wherever. And um, the storekeeper just, you know, opening the doors and handing out water. And um, one of the guys owned a shoe store, managed a shoe store. Remember this. We got in a huge fight with the uh, owners of the chain in subsequent years because these people are coming, pouring across, especially women. Like, they ditched their high-heeled shoes, right? And then they got, they're walking mm-hmm. barefoot and they're cut up. So he's just giving them giving them sneakers. Like, what the fuck are you going to do? It's a war zone at this point. And, of course, right. the, you know, rather than the, the company who owned it, you know, claiming that under insurance, they like tried to prosecute him for theft for giving away. I mean, it's just even those, those tiny little moments, exactly like these tiny little moments. Um, it's a hero. We watched. Uh, then we lived right downwind of it, and I had a balcony in in, in Brooklyn Heights, and uh, you know, dust and ash rained down for weeks afterwards. So it was it was uh, it was awful, and. Yeah. Uh, it it it's the one thing I I remember vividly, which hopefully I, I still to this day would love to meet this prick. Um, I was walking on September thirteenth in Lower Manhattan, like um, kind of up you know near the village, I guess. Um, and someone had decided this is the time to be like really clever and Gandhi esque, and had written on this big sheet, you know, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, and put it up. And I looked around, and I found half a brick, and I hurled that brick right through that fucking window. And I stood waiting. I wasn't running away. I was waiting. I wanted the prick to come out. Um, there was no one home. So if anyone listening to this, if you're that prick, please, I'm more than happy to have this conversation, you know, 22 years later. Um, Get you on the show. Didn't Richard Gere say some stupid shit like that, too, sure like right did. after? Sure he did. So it was, uh, it, was, it was a really bad day. A lot of people died. And uh, I've just got no patience for, uh, oh, yeah, I've got very little patience for anyone that has anything remotely equivocal to say about that day. There was just no reason for it. It's not a military target. Um, at the end of the day, for all his faults, um, Osama bin Laden was not stupid. He got exactly what he wanted. He got exactly what he wanted. He got an animus on the West by having American boots on what were deemed to be Islamic soil. He has driven us straight into bankruptcy. He got exactly what he wanted. In large measure. Says the same thing. He won. He he won. Yeah. 
No, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with that. I've said that before that he did that what he was trying to do, change the world, you know, change the United States, put all these different shackles on us. It, it, it 100% worked in more ways than one. And, um, you know, he, he didn't live to see us, us leave and this end, but thank God, you know, um, somebody put a bullet or bullets in him, but, uh, yeah, no, in, in a lot of ways it, a lot more people died, uh, that didn't need to because of that, you know, and. It, it is. It's. I mean, I, no one, no one, uh, our age, uh, can forget where they were when that happened. You know, and it is. It is one of the most. And, I, and as a millennial, we lived through a lot of really serious, uh, life changing things. Um, but uh, that one is is one hundred percent the one that changed the everybody's lives completely and totally. Um, but right up there, you know, in a different way with uh 2020 the way it changed the world in that way but it, it really did so then i could tell you right now you know i was uh, my dad was stationed in japan i was about to go to bed with the time difference right. um i used to wake up with uh the tv in my room coming on to vh1 at like 5 a.m <laughs> and uh i was programming it and afn was on and uh my i don't know 14 year old brain was like oh they're showing showing a movie Right. Cause it's, it's, it's at night and that's what AFN does. And, uh, turn my TV off the alarm when I woke up, throw my, uh, threw my army JROTC uniform on and went downstairs. My parents were like, you're not going to school today, buddy. And I was like, what's going on? And like, go change. And we'll tell you. And, uh, you know, I or I can remember it vividly and I'm sure Zach does too. It's just the most, one of the most defining moments in our lives. Yeah. Both my, uh, both my parents worked. And so they were already at work. We were, I was on the West Coast. They were already at work doing their thing or whatever. Um, I don't think either of them knew that it happened before they went to work. We weren't, we didn't watch the news in the morning. They didn't really listen to the radio. So they just went to work. And uh, I got, I did their normal routine. I was in the third grade. So um, I uh, woke up, had my little like Fruit Loops or whatever. I remember being a fruit cereal. I don't remember if it was Fruity Pebbles or Fruit Loops, it was a fruit <laughs> cereal. Pebbles and is then, I got, I agree. Uh, got my brother Colin ready to go to school too. And we walked to school. And I, I remember that day being kind of quiet. Like there was way less traffic. The the cross lady wasn't there to help us cross the street. And I was kind of like, it's kind of weird. I get all the way to school and school was like empty. And I went up to Mrs. Combs class and uh, she had so the news playing. Name. Yeah. She had the news playing. I remember exactly what she looked like too. We used to call her a witch because she like a short stubby girl. She always wore black all the time and had like curly hair and a big nose. We just, she's a witch. And so we were, um, uh, it was like me, like four other kids in this class. They normally had like 30, 40 kids. Hadn't heard. And then they, <laughs> you're right. Yeah. And then they, and then they put us all into the assembly or into like the assembly, uh, gymnasium or whatever. And then they told us our parents were coming and, the whole time I was just like, it, little me, I was like, because two towers fell? I was like, okay, I, I, that's weird. And then later on, my dad was trying to explain to me, like, no, like America was attacked. Like, this is enemies. He's like, it's not good. And I was like, oh. And then I put two, two together. Yeah. Every day. Very. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I uh, saw a lot less of my dad from that point forward. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Air Force is probably in like Epicon Delta for like months. Well, so I lived up the street from, yeah, I lived up the street from um, my best friend and um, 
didn't go to school. And my parents, um, even still that day, were very loose about letting us run around the base because it's pretty safe. Um, so we did. We walked the 10 blocks, me and my brother down, and uh, we had to pass one of the gates. And um, there's a tank right there at the at the gate. And um, I was like, holy shit, you know, like awestruck and, and a little like, wow, that's amazing and badass, you know, at 14. I'm like, it's a fucking mm-hmm. tank, you know. But at the same time, you know, in retrospect, yeah. it's like, that's how serious. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the Air Force had doesn't have tanks. Right. So they overnight had that come down from somewhere just to put it right there, you know, and the Marine um, camp, so yeah, probably. definitely. Right. Well, I think we were a little closer to one of the army posts, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I did at Delta, my dad, uh, you know, Intel for 24 years, um, went to carrying a gun, standing around doing other things. So yeah. just changed, changed everything for my family. And then, uh, you know, a lot of my friends, uh, through the rest of the high school, their lives changed to parents, parents dying, having to leave, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, very, uh, very so, different and unique yeah. way to grow up. I'm sure. So Chris, that there was like, is... obviously a lot of people died that day and then still thousands died afterwards from like health effects, whatever. It's kind of more, I guess, of a personal question, but you were there. Do, do you suffer from any like health issues from 9-11? You or your wife yeah, or anything or no? I fully expect it's going to take 15, 20 years of my life at the end of the day. We, um, Breathe that in. I've been fairly fortunate um, in that uh, certainly it damaged my breathing, and then um, mm-hmm. I caught COVID, which made that worse. Um, uh, but predominantly, you know, I got lucky. So, so far as I'm concerned, every day, every day, both grounds a good day. And yeah. uh, it just, yeah, that, that uh, you know, one of the guys um, I knew well, you know, and as you you well know from the military, like so. There's no predictability in how people will deal with trauma, right? Um, I, I reiterate this constantly, partially because of the work I do now, but just in general, that whenever someone says PTSD, I correct them. I said, there's no D. The D makes it sound like there's something wrong with someone. If you've gone through serious trauma, you are impacted by it. Some people shake it off better than others. I've got no idea why, right? Um, and one of the guys I worked with subsequently, he was standing on... Um, the middle floor, so where the first, the second plane hit, um, they still didn't know what had happened to the other towers. Only like twelve minutes between them, and so just picture this: he's standing here in the coffee room, having a cup of coffee, and what he later finds out, he is standing right next to one of the steel reinforced bulwark walls on that floor. Right? Why would you know that if you're just in an office? Right? He's drinking yeah. coffee, and there's someone. He's talking to someone, normal distance. They're three feet in front of him having a conversation, and as he's sipping coffee, a wall of fire just takes that person away. The plane had hit and exploded, and there were, if there were, you know, 800 people on that floor, two lived. He walked away without a scratch. Just, and, I mean, just think about that. Just out of of nowhere. You can imagine. Building. and he stood there in shock. Survivors killed. It's got to kill him. So, mm-hmm. Maybe. I mean, he, from from what I, you know, he a very religious man, so he whatever his whatever some, whatever some he through it. Um, but he said, you know, I watched this wall of fire incinerate somebody, 
And then I stood there with my cup of coffee in my hand. And he's like, it's the little things you remember. Like, he's like, I tried to like put it down like carefully for some reason. Right? And then, you know, we looked and where there wasn't pure incineration, there was just you know, hundreds of bodies. And he looked around and he just walked to the nearest stairwell and walked down and out and just kept walking north up Manhattan. Um, eventually stopped, I guess, but obviously, but a lot of stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a never, the fact that we live in a world full of evil and we've got a lot of people who don't believe in it or deny that it's there, don't know what the reasons are, but yeah, uh, I put emotion a lot, right? I, I, I know that I speak to lots and lots of, you know, guys younger than you too, who, you know, they, uh, uh, this is the world they grew up in, right? You can, you know, I was just talking to somebody the other day. He had a full 20-year career in the Air Force. His entire career was fighting in Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> that was his life, like from 18 to 38. Um, it's kind of incredible that we were there all this it time. Is. And then the withdrawal was such a colossal clusterfuck that is a disgrace oh, in the annals of military non-history. Um, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's agonizing, right? So we, 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 we can do it. Yeah. It's like, Hey, like if, you know, people, you know, they did 20 years after that and stuff like that in the military. Um, I think obviously other than like the world war two generation of veterans, I think the generation of veterans after like for the G Watt era, like they weren't drafted anything like that. Like these are people who still serve their country, knowing their country's at war and that they're going to go to war. I think that 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 20 to 25 year stint of veterans um, are some of the greatest, greatest veterans of of the United States of America, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm I'm honored to be able to help them uh, and their families, because I just think, you know, I, I speak to. I guess that's, that's, you know, what are the current statistics recruiter, you know, with something like 23% of military age, young men and women could pass the test to get into the military right now. I mean, that's a national fucking disgrace. Quite frankly, yeah. we talked about national service earlier. I know that for some of the cohorts, they were so out of shape, they extended basic training eight weeks. Right. And in large measure, I'm a major fan, like 100% of military aged men and women should do two years of service. And if one year of it is basically fat camp, good for you. The nation just did you a favor. We just, we got you shape. We taught you a little discipline. We taught you good nutrition. You should thank us. The least you can do is dig a road. (laughs) Exactly. I watched a video recently, a, a gym class from like 1952 and just, it's, it's wild. Like they got this whole obstacle course out there that these guys are doing and not, there's not a difference between any one of them and how efficiently they're making their way through this obstacle course. Yeah. And you wouldn't see that today. That's for sure. You know, and, and, by, and, and you probably have a bunch of kids act like you were targeting them and all kinds of shit now, mm-hmm. but you know, it's, it is, it's, it's wildly different. Um, and that's a choice. That's a, that's a societal choice that if we allow yeah the whiners and the complainers to run things, you get useless whiny people. If you, you do and accountability and responsibility of children, they rise to the occasion. This coddling of these, of these 
little it is, it's, it is the worst thing ever. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, hopefully we, we try to um, we try to to fix that uh, in terms of you know where you are, you raise your kids correctly, and in some places they just look at it very differently, and they you know raise these whiny, useless brats who. You know, you're doing them no service by telling them they're victims. I don't know what the goal of this crap is, except for mm-hmm. dos- a docile, obedient, subservient population. Yeah, say. Exactly. Slaves. That's what the goal is. It goes into that. But it goes into that cycle where it's like strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard you know. times, hard times create strong men. We're currently in the easy times, oh, yeah. weak men. And then mm-hmm. weak men going into hard I times. I think the weak men are making hard times. Yeah. Yeah, General, I thank you. Guys, this is a great, great conversation. Is there anything I've I have missed that? Uh, well, I you, you had, it ended up being your show. <laughs> I guess it's it's our show. Let's do let's let's call it that. Um, we will call it. I came with a mess or something like that. Yeah, uh, or messy title. fire. I, I don't know. Mess. Yeah, I yeah. came with messy fire. But, but yeah, you. So I, I like to ask this of some people, especially those who've definitely had a, a more fulfilling life than others or, or have more experience, right? Is if you could go back in time and tell 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old Chris something, what would you tell him? Oh, man. You know, buy um, Greenland. Invest in <laughs> Yahoo. Buy Greenland, yeah. <laughs> um, you think I tell him the lottery ticket numbers for the next 10 years. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know it's got to be pensive you know you know it, but it's, it's it's funny I've, I've often thought of that and i think i might actually have had an answer for that 10 years ago but i'm getting mm-hmm. to some point in my life where everything good and bad that happened got me here and like you I, I just you, you, you don't know, want to mess it up experience well you know experience comes from making bad choices right and you only make good choices with experience and so um I think about it hard because every parent tries to convey it um, to children, but there's a reason why we learn experientially and we don't learn by being told it. And so I don't quite know what I could have told that bullheaded knucklehead. I really don't. I just, I really, because you know, you want to know something? He knew fucking everything. He knew a lot more than I know now. (laughs) He was a lot surer (laughs) about things than I am now. That's what my dad told the me when I was in high school. He's just move out now while you know everything. Well, you know, yeah. 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 Just I go. I think that's part of the cycle. I don't, um, I really, I can think my about it a lot. My dad used to today. tell me that he forgot more than I'll ever know. So. <laughs> also, also, also totally possibly true. So yeah, no, I wish I had a better answer. I just, uh, no, that was a really good answer. Most everybody has something that's, you know, really deep and meaningful, but I agree. Your experiences are what make you who you are today. And if you're happy with who you are, I mean, why would you go back and try and alter anything? So I, I, I do. I like, I like your answer. And I appreciate you coming on and talking to us. I know it's been a, awesome. been a journey. Yeah, no doubt. I appreciate it. It was really awesome. Thank yeah. you for taking the time. And uh, thank you for your service. Keep it up. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Uh, I appreciate your support. That's phenomenal. What, uh, I'm going to give a quick uh, shout out to our sponsors real fast. Uh, Red Clover Coffee, um, obviously, 
amazing guys, veteran-owned business, donate to a lot of really great charities. Uh, if you like coffee, which the majority of us do, especially with the, the vets that listen to this show, um, <laughs> head on over to their website, roadcloverCoffee.com. You can use code came with fire to get 10% off your entire purchase. Or if you are into the more violent disciplines, MMA, uh, shooting, or your survivor violent circumstances, um, head on over to Sheep's Clothing LLC. Uh, get yourself some, some merch, a, a flag, uh, some MMA gear, you can use code FIRE10 at checkout again to get 10% off your purchase um, by supporting them. You support us, vice versa. So please go on over there, show them that uh, you appreciate us and you appreciate them. So thank you to uh, Red Clover Coffee and Sheep's Clothing LLC. All right, guys. You have a good night, Chris. I appreciate it. So I just leave this up for a bit. You said so it uh, records, right? Yeah, we'll give it. We'll give it. A, we'll give it a second or two. Awesome. Well, thanks. Now, guys, I'm. I'm Glad you took it. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we had a chat to chat. So, thank you. Yeah, heck yeah. It's been.